house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast watching the year 2003 follow a shimmering processional into the undying lands. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hello! We're not talking about a movie, not just one movie this episode. This is a little bonus episode we are having to wrap up our mini-series on the films of 2003. Yay! Which I think, if I do say so myself, went pretty well for a mini-series that had three unbearable movies followed by a rather rambunctious sex thriller. I think it went well as well. I've heard from... And by uh, rambunctious, I mean the sex part, not the actual movie. The actual movie in the cut is pretty, you know, contemplative and, and you know, whatnot. But Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I, I've talked to a few people, at least in the point of recording, where they have been very uh, appreciative of the deep dive that we've done throughout the month. Um, Love a deep dive. I know. Speaking of in the cut. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> well... Yes, it's it's been interesting because we do like to ping around in the years so we don't kind of overlap ourselves. But like, I think part of like what we do and what we as hosts are able to keep like in our minds a lot is how a lot of these moving pieces um, within any Oscar given year that relate to a single movie affected one another. And what's been interesting is that like we can kind of show the canvas of those moving pieces throughout this mini series whereas like we kind of have to pick and choose whenever we're doing an episode a single episode so that's been fun yes it's it, it feels like it's we're seeing a little bit of the whole picture i want to when we as we're wrapping this up sort of talk about the actual oscar nominees that year and because i think one of the things that i wanted to say when we decided to do a whole month on the movies of the same year is a movie like a year like 2003. And I think I've said this before a year like 2003 is interesting because a lot of what seemed like it would work on paper didn't. And so what we got was a little bit more specific or broke some rules in some way. I think it's no coincidence that 2003 was a year in which only like it was the biggest sweep of all time and it was for an epic sort of fantasy battle movie of the likes we had never seen as a best picture winner mm-hmm. i think it's no coincidence that this was the year of the third ever female best director nominee of a out of left field 
South American film cracking best director as City of God did with Fernando Morales. Um, that Johnny Depp came out of nowhere to get a nomination for a very silly action comedy from like deep in the heart of Disney and carried on, that like, movie to quite a few nominations. Yes. Um, that we got shocking morning of nominations for Samantha Morton and Jaiman Hansu for in America, who in America was one of those movies that looked good on paper, but that it was one of the ones that survived after like it's buzz had been declared for dead was really fascinating to me. We got, very, very tiny movies like Pieces of April and The Cooler, which ended up with acting nominees. We got Theron and Keaton in Best Actress as a somewhat unlikely showdown between, you know, this sort of deglamming to the nth power kind of thing with Charlize mm -hmm. Theron, where like everything we thought we knew about like Oscar or uh, best actress D glam was like taken to the extreme with Charlie Theron and monster up against a very light, frothy romantic comedy from a woman of a certain age in Diane Keaton. Um, the Keisha Castle Hughes nomination. Do you know what I mean? It, it feels yeah. like there's a lot of moving pieces in this year that are kind of anomalies or would set some, new rules or like fall back on old rules like yeah i say rules in like the squ the scare quotes of like what we expect oscar to behave or how oscar does behave i think another Even example down into like the uh, the screenplay categories where like mm -hmm. dirty pretty things will always be an oscar nominee because of that one screenplay nomination and it's it's good but it's odd yeah I rewatched that one and it did not, or well, I watched for the first time. I tried to make sure that I'd seen everything in all of the yeah. above the line categories for like, as we're doing our research for this. And that one didn't fully stand out for me though. I no, love Chiwetel Ejiofor in it. Yeah. Chiwetel Ejiofor and what's her face? Audrey Totu. Yeah. The, some of the nominations this year are very kind of interesting and funny. The fact that like the barbarian invasions was popular enough to get the, foreign language jumps out of the foreign language film category to get a screenplay nomination, which part of me feels like we'll maybe think about Cold War that way in the future of, isn't it funny that Cold War managed to get best director nomination and a best, you know, cinematography nomination. I and mean, it was beloved last year. We are noted uh, Cold War dissenters, but... We are chilly on Cold War. Myself, yeah. I am a Barbarian Invasions defender. I did not get why people loved that movie so much when I watched it. Yeah. Um, I also think, like, it is... It's interesting because all of those things are true, but there is a, as many cases that kind of reinforce the stodgier ideas about the Academy in 2003. Um, like you look at Seabiscuit still getting that best yes. picture nomination and the type of logic that probably people who voted for it fell back on. Um, I think even though I love the film master and commander is an example of that because closer to nomination morning, we thought that that movie was dead. I think mystic river is also interesting in that it's kind of like, even though it's Clint Eastwood, it's essentially this like moody chamber piece that yeah. like cake walked it into the nominations that it got particularly yes. best picture because of larger movies falling to the wayside, as you mentioned. So it's like, it, it's 
both sides of this equation are yeah. at play in 2003. And I think it's been interesting to unpack both. It's funny to look at some of the people whose only Oscar nomination comes from this year, where it's like Alec Patricia Baldwin. Clarkson, Alec Baldwin, <laughs> right. Um, Samantha Morton. Wait, no. Samantha, sorry, Samantha Morton, Morton has multiple. Yeah, she has multiple. You're right. Um, but it's it's interesting that like some of these people who came, you know, at this Oscar thing from from very odd angles. I don't mm-hmm. know. So Been fun. I. Yes. In, I had the little thought experiment of what would the, if the the 10 had existed in 2003, and of course with the caveat that when your best picture category has up to 10 possible nominees, the whole season plays out differently and, you know, money is allocated differently and buzz accumulates differently. So there's no perfect way of being, of being able to know, but just to play out the thought experiment what do you think the other five, if it had been a top 10 year in Best Picture, would have been? I feel if you looked at the best, I feel very strongly about what my like six through 10 would be. I think uh-huh. you're going to disagree with me very starkly on what I think number six was. Okay, what did you think number six was? I think it was in America. That's very interesting. I have it in my top ten, but I don't think I would have put it that high. I think it was safely number six. It was a movie that made people feel things. It got the screenplay nomination. It got multiple acting nominations. I remember people even talking about, like, the kids getting nominated at that time. Definitely, I think the fact that it got the screenplay nomination as well as the two acting nominations means a lot. It helps Um, that it's very different from the other Best Picture players. There's nothing else like it. And it's, I think... cer- it's easily the most sentimental thing. This is a remarkably unsentimental best picture category. The most sentimental of them is The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the mm-hmm. King, actually. Very much so. And, I mean, this it just is, I think, to me, a categorical passion play movie where it's like it's all about the campaign for that movie is all about uniting people around a movie that makes them feel things. Um, and yeah. it's like, it's the movie that made people cry. Um, so that would be so my number six. What are your, what do you have? Do you have it all filled out to 10? I do. I do. My number seven would be cold mountain just because it yeah. got a lot of those nominations. I don't feel like it was close enough to get to six. Um, maybe if Anthony Minghella had gotten that nomination. Um, but and just the general kind of disregard for that movie, even though it had a lot of nominations. I think yeah. it still would have been in a 10, but not immediately the number six. My number eight would be Finding Nemo. Um, number nine, American Splendor, which had a lot of passionate support, and it just kind of rallied around that screenplay nomination. It feels like it was just outside of a lot of categories. Or it needed a little bit more time for its actual campaign to gel. Yeah, a little bit to like make more nominations happen. And this th- was the beginning of the four-year stretch where Giamatti comes close here. Giamatti comes insanely close next year with Sideways, and in fact, the fact that he wasn't nominated for Sideways and the movie was a Best Picture nominee is still the weirdest thing in the world to me. Yeah, that, that um, there would be one and not the other, and then ultimately gets his only Oscar nomination for Cinderella Man, which is the 
dumbest thing. Like it's so strange that for a that's movie what that has got Oscar no nominations. other nominations too. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, that would be a great movie to talk about for a like technicality miniseries. We're gonna. We're, we're working. We're, we've been noodling around just to let the listeners in. We've been noodling around the idea of doing a series of uh, technicalities where movies that don't qualify for this had Oscar buzz because they have an Oscar nomination in a you know particularly high spot. I think of a movie like Charlie Wilson's War in this way is like the perfect example of that. Where like Charlie Wilson's War is essentially a this had Oscar buzz candidate given how highly it was anticipated. It was the front what, runner for like. Nine and then months. it crashed, and just because Philip Seymour Hoffman managed to like survive on the strength of his own insane monologue in that movie doesn't mean that Charlie Wilson's War wouldn't be a fascinating movie to discuss in those lines. So I think we're going to try and find a way to, in a limited you know fashion, not sort of open the gates to everything because you know terms still matter, but. Yes. We're working on it, but yeah, you're right. I think tossing out way, the idea of doing maybe a Patreon, and those could be Patreon episodes. Listen, you throw money at us, we'll we'll dance. Yeah. We'll do a little dance for you. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so in America was your nine, and then what was your ten? My or number not, uh, ten, which American Splendor was your nine. What's your ten? My number ten, which sounds like a hot take, but I don't think that this is at all crazy, considering the nominations that it got. I would say Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, interesting. I thought you were going to go with what my 10 is. It became, like, you can say that Johnny Depp carried that movie to the number of nominations that it got, but it got a good nomination tally. Let me see how many it actually got. Um, But when it's, like, just Johnny Depp and then all those craft categories, let's see. So it got five. Um I that movie was such a big talking point. I think it ha- it doesn't have the burden of being disregarded because it was part of a franchise at that point, culturally yeah. speaking, in the way that they're like it took a lot for it took Black Panther being special um in a way that Avengers movies are not and it took that movie having its own creativity to break that mold. Yeah. Um for it to get a nomination, I don't think the original Pirates of the Caribbean would have had that. And I think because it was so well-liked, I think that would have been the number 10. All right, that's interesting. So my the way I think it would have shaked out was I do have Cold Mountain as number 6 because it's still got Jude Law and Renee Zellweger nominations. It's still got an editing nomination, although the fact that Minghella and the screenplay were both gone, and not to mention Kidman does poke some holes in it, but I still feel like there's enough of it to have made it to a top 10. I have it at six. I could argue that my number seven might deserve that spot more. My number seven is City of God because between the director nomination, the screenplay nomination, and the editing nomination, all as huge surprises, like, I'm sure it came very close. I just don't, like, I didn't, I very... (laughs) <laughs> I felt this very strongly in assembling what my 6 through 10 would be. I think if there were true signs that that movie would have been on Best Picture ballots enough to even make a top 10, we would have not been surprised by those nominations that morning. The director's branch is a very small branch. Yeah. Like, it's... 
It's the writing nomination, though. I feel like if it's because that puts it on both sides of that kind of I always think of directing and writing as being like the left brain, right brain of the Oscar race. I totally get the logic of it. I just I see City of God as more of a foxcatcher type situation. Yeah. Okay. Then uh, like I get the logic behind thinking that it would have made a 10, but I think we would have had more signs that City of God was going to show up in these nominations if it truly would have had a chance in best picture. It really still just is amazing. Just like contemplate on it that this movie that had been fully forgotten, that had been essentially literally last year's news, right? Mm-hmm. That it got Four, not even just four surprise nominations when nobody expected it to get any, but that it's four were directing, writing, editing, and cinematography, which aren't like, it's not like picture or acting, but it's like, it's the tops of, you know, what you can hope for when you are a a foreign language nominee like that. It's really something. I mean, I think it also, like we talked about this in our Human Stain episode, I think it also doesn't happen if that's not Miramax's movie, because all of their movies were kind of dying, and especially at the last minute. I think this one was the, like, come-up-from-behind example yeah. where it's like, they need to throw parties for some movies to get some nominations. Like, yeah. they've already spent their Cold Mountain money, but, like, what else can they get? And it ended up being City of God, which, I, if I remember correctly, its actual theatrical run... I'm pretty sure it was in the spring. Let me look at this opening date. I don't disagree with that. That seems right to me. Uh, while you, while you look that up, I will say my number eight that year is is what is Finding Nemo, same as yours. I think that is one of those. Once the category opened up to ten, then everybody sort of agreed that the top animation movie, especially if it was a Pixar, will always get consideration. And Finding Nemo was a hugely popular movie. My number nine is in America for all the reasons that Chris, you said. It's that all makes very much sense, especially that it had such a late, you know, surge or resurgence in that season. And then my number 10, which is what I thought you were actually leading up to, has less of a of support from the other nominations. But I think narratively, it makes a lot of sense, which I think was Whale Rider. I think Whale Rider mm. would have been your surprise. It got two nominations, and they were actress gone. and picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Whale Rider definitely has that thing of it makes you feel things. Um, yes. And clearly, if they got Keisha Castle-Hughes in Best Actress, yeah, like there was a lot of support for that movie. Yeah. I think the glaring omission, and we've said it, I think we said it in one of our earlier episodes is the station agent. I don't think I don't again, like if it was the campaign was already set that there were going to be 10 best picture nominees that the whole race changes for that movie. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think if that movie doesn't have a screenplay nomination, it probably wouldn't have been in a top 10 for best picture. Yeah. Cause we still haven't had the situation where the only nomination that a movie gets is best picture. Right. Um, so to pivot off of the actual Oscar nominations, we also wanted to give a little bit of a nod, and we've alluded to this a little bit in our, you know, in the various other podcasts in this series, but we talked about our own choices for best of that year. And I will say I have, I've been making lists like this since the late nineties and I have a giant Word document that just keeps getting updated and updated and updated, and it's backed up 12 different places because I can't ever lose it. 
But I also, I sometimes update these things and refine them. And sometimes, sorry, I update these things occasionally and I refine them. But sometimes they they sort of stay untouched for a while. So it'll be interesting as I look at this, because I haven't tinkered with this previous to tonight or today's recording. So did you want to do best picture, best director, and all the acting categories? Sure. All right. So why don't you start with your choices for supporting actor and then I'll see where mine add up. Uh, My supporting actor ballot is Paul Bettany for Master and Commander, Bobby Cannavale for The Station Agent, Cliff Curtis for Whale Rider. Wow. Yeah. Um, Fred Willard for A Mighty Wind. Hey, what happened? And my winner is Eugene Levy for A Mighty Wind. You have already so much better and more esoteric picks than mine. Fred Willard is a genius choice. Frankly, this is not the greatest supporting actor year. I mean, when do we ever have a great supporting actor year? But, like, this is the quintessential. You might as well, like, go there this year for your supporting actor ballot. So I did, and Fred Willard's there. What is his name in that? Frank LaFontaine? Yes. Let's start right out. Hey, what happened? As you know, back in 1970, I started on a series called... What happened? And every time something would go wrong, I would look at the camera and say, Hey, what happened? <laughs> we had a lot of fun with that and a lot of other catchphrases. I got a real red wagon. <laughs> and uh, I can't do my work. And I believe I was the first one to use the phrase, I don't think so. But it only lasted a year, and that's good because that's how you establish a cult. It's so I don't think so. That whole that whole clip I watch frequently. If he's and got a long enough day, hose, he'll have a lot of friends in the locker room. <laughs> it's the way he starts to laugh at something and then is just like, no, we can't just like that never mind. Yeah. Um But you Eugene wonderful. Levy, I really think you know, Eugene Levy gives such a performance in that movie that like it's I think like he deserves a special place in the this head Oscar buzz narrative because that performance did actually get Oscar buzz for it and like was yeah. being bandied around for a while enough that like that became the plot of the next Christopher Guest well, movie. <laughs> every Christopher Guest movie for those first four had one performance that was championed in one way or another. It was it was Guest himself in Guffman. It was Willard as a supporting actor in Best in Show, if you remember, as the dog show uh, commentator. And it was Eugene Levy for A Mighty Wind. And then Catherine O'Hara ended up getting a decent little push there for a while for For Your Consideration. Yeah, if For Your Consideration was a better movie or at least on the level of the or closer to the level of the rest of the movies, I think that would have happened, but I think it didn't happen for her ultimately because it was yeah. the weakest one of these movies. Also, uh, our listeners, if and you, we every once in a while we get asked what is that clip at the very beginning of our episode before the music kicks in. That is, of course, Fred Willard and Catherine O'Hara from the film For Your Consideration. So. There we go with that. My picks for Best Supporting Actor, and I'm looking at this, and you can tell how long it's been since I've updated this, because truly, the fanboy jumped out, and I haven't been able to jump him back in. So, in alphabetical order, the Save very your winner first for last. of which... Save your winner for last. Okay. 
Well, it's okay because my winner is also alphabetically last. Fantastic. Sean Astin in Lord of the Rings Return of the King. You guys, I was so in the bag for that movie. It's quite genuinely shocking that it never happened, I think. It is weird. It, it is was weird. so, like, right there, ready to go for it to happen. And anyway, Paul Bettany in Master and Commander, Benicio Del Toro in 21 Grams, Peter Sarsgaard in Shattered Glass, and then my winner... Which I stand behind as a really good performance, but I don't know if I would stand behind me behind it as a winner. I might put Sarsgaard up there instead. Uh, but I had Ken Watanabe in The Last Samurai, who I thought was very good. And the more I hated that movie, the more I decided I loved Watanabe in it. Yeah, as almost like a, as almost a defiant kind of a thing. But see, Sarsgaard is very up. close to my ballot. Um, I think he's. It's maybe just that he did things later that are similar, that are even better. Um, But again, I think it's like this is me going weird when I get the chance to. All right. I'll do supporting actress first. I had had Zellweger just missing at number six. I will say that. She's my number six, too. We did our supporting actress in one episode. but Did we? Okay. I don't think we said who our winners are. I'll take it quickly. I had Shori Agadashalu. Hope Davis, Shrega Dashlu for uh, House of Sand and Fog, Hope Davis for American Splendor, Holly Hunter for 13, Emma Thompson for Love Actually, and my winner is Patricia Clarkson for The Station Agent. Fantastic. I love it. Um, my ballot is Shrega Dashlu for House of Sand and Fog, uh, Patricia Clarkson for The Station Agent, not Pieces of April. Um, Anna Ferris no, Pieces for of April Lost is bad. Tra- yeah. Anna uh, Ferris for Lost in Translation. So good. Uh, Naomi Harris for 28 Days Later. And my winner, Holly Hunter for 13. So good. Such a, again, a better list than mine. It, we have talked about this before, so we don't need to linger on it for too long. But um, well done. Why don't you jump into Best Actor? Um, actually, take that back. My number six place is Emma Thompson, not Renee Zellweger. But anyway, on to Best Actor. Um, Hayden Christensen for Shattered Glass. He he was cl- up on mine. He did not make my top five, but he was up there. Uh, Johnny Depp for Pirates of the Caribbean. Ben Kingsley for House of Sand and Fog. Mark Ruffalo, thank you, rewatch of In the mm-hmm. Cut. And my winner is Bill Murray. Nice. Very good. I have, let's see, alphabetically, Johnny Depp, Pirates of the Caribbean. Peter Dinklage, The Station Agent. Paul Giamatti, American Splendor, Ben Kingsley, House of Sand and Fog, and then my winner is Bill Murray for Lost in Translation. Fantastic. We agree on something. Yes. What is your best actress ballot? But, uh, I mean, we may have even talked about this a little bit. Uh, Also, a very competitive one. I feel bad about leaving out Diane Keaton for Something's Gotta Give, and if I did it again, I might have done it differently. But um, I had Scarlett Johansson for Lost in Translation, Samantha Morton for In America, Uma Thurman for Kill Bill Volume 1, Naomi Watts for 21 Grams, and then my winner is Charlize Theron for Monster. Fantastic. Uh, My Best Actress ballot, I have, thank you again to the rewatch, Meg Ryan for In the Cut. Well Um, done. Charlize Theron for Monster, Uma Thurman for Kill Bill Volume 1, Evan Rachel Wood for 13, and my winner, Joseph Shame on You, Diane Keaton for Something's Gotta Give. Wow. I like that both of our winners were the two big contenders that year. Yeah. Touch. Yeah, I should have. Again, if I did this again, I should have. I would put her up there. Evan Rachel Wood just missed mine. She was my number six. I like that we only really overlap on like three of each category. That makes yeah. me happy. Yeah. Should we move on uh, to the best director? 
Yeah, do best director. Okay, so best director for me, I have Danny Boyle, 28 Days Later, Christopher Guest, A Mighty Wind, Quentin Tarantino for Kill Bill Volume 1, Peter Weir for Master and Commander, and the winner, Sofia Coppola for Lost in Translation. Nice. Very nice. Actually, I really like that. Mine are Danny Boyle for 28 Days Later. Chris, that is a great pick, I think, for both of us. Sofia Coppola for Lost in Translation. Errol Morris for The Fog of War. Interesting. Love that movie. Quentin Tarantino for Kill Bill Volume 1. And my winner is Peter Jackson for Lord of the Rings Return of the King. I have nothing to say about that. (laughs) Wow. Okay. I am famously not into the Lord of the Rings movies. I think they are perfectly fine. Yeah. Also, again, this is the, your best indication that I have not rejiggered this list for quite a while. I would probably rank Sofia Coppola for Lesson Translation higher and perhaps Danny Boyle. I genuinely think 28 Days Later is one of the greats. I do as well, as you will see when we get to our top tens. Well, we're here, so why don't you go? Do you okay. give, starting with ten and, and rank them all the way up to one. Okay, so the way that I typically work with, like, top tens is, like, if, like, things are jockeying for, like, a tenth spot or, like, I typically do a 20, like, the 20th spot, it's more about, like, I don't know, advocacy, I guess. But, like, I toyed around with a few things. I toyed around with, like, American Splendor. Um, But in the end, I actually chose my number 10 as in the cut, I think, even though it is not flawless at how it like combines all of its like perspectives i do think that it is doing some very very interesting things that will at least linger in my mind longer than other things like american splendor um yeah and i think that that should be rewarded um beyond that my number nine is 13 Number eight, Master and Commander. Joe famously does not care for Master and Commander. I think it is a real um, incredible experience, even if you're watching it on like a DVD, as I did. I have no idea <laughs> how they made some of those sequences on this boat and like some of these shots completely blow my mind. I don't know how that movie exists. It could not be made today. Um Master Tune in next week it. when Christopher marries a giant uh, clipper ship from Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Tune in next week when I have been replaced because I am on my honeymoon with Peter Weir. <laughs> um, my, my number seven is The Station Agent. It's a lovely movie. We did not get to cover it. Please watch it if you have not seen it. Ah, uh, it's so good. My number six um, is A Mighty Wind. A Mighty Wind would be way higher on my list if not for some of the things that we've pointed out in other episodes specifically the way that this movie ends it's a real sully on what i think is a perfect comedy true Um, (laughs) it's a real sully and by that you mean tom hanks shows up as sully sullenberger to go through the simulations of ending a mighty wind and it goes to pieces every time no i meant it's a real sully as in that movie is toxic and (laughs) shouldn't be and yet it still is um uh, if you like sully you are wrong (laughs) uh, i agree that's a garbage movie um anyway joseph are you ready for my hottest take that i have had this entire (laughs) series maybe what my number five movie 
is one that is viciously underrated. I think if it had had a different opening weekend, maybe this would this movie would be even remembered at all. Um, I know there's gay people who will scream. Uh, wait about this. My number wait, five movie. Wait, wait. Let have... me guess. Let me try and guess. Let me try and guess. Gay people will hate it. No, gay people. Gay people will not hate it. Gay people will be happy that I think the only people keeping this movie alive are gay people. Okay, wait. Let me let me make a guess. Um. Now I'm trying to think of like 2003 movies that have like. Oh, is it camp? It is not camp. Fuck. Okay, then that's my guess. Uh, no, camp is not on my top ten. Camp is not great all the time. But it's but it's wonderful. It is not great, but it's it's not that good all the time. But it's great. My my number five movie was the counter programming to Revenge of the Sith. It should have multiple Oscar nominations, and it is Peyton Reed's Down with Down Love. with Love. It's I incredible. Love it is. A play off of Doris Day and Rock Hudson movies. It is gorgeous. It is so funny. It has some of the gaggiest costume cues. Sarah Paulson is very close to my supporting actress. That's palette. the first time I ever noticed Sarah Paulson in anything. And then almost immediately after that, she showed up on Deadwood. And the one-two punch of those two things, I was I immediately paid attention. It's, I mean, like, it's frothy and all of that, but it is... A flawless, wonderful movie. Um, it's really, really good. It is the, the stylistic parody is on target, but you also f- really like get, get parodies in it, the but it allows you to really enjoy it, and it's like yeah. nothing else that we've seen All right. um, in recent times. Moving on, my yeah. number four is Kill Bill Volume One. We definitely feel differently about Tarantino today, and it's gotten like so far up his own ass. But this, I think, is a Tarantino that I love and yes. a Tarantino that is, you know, masturbatory but not self-important. And oh, I think there is so some genuine pathos in Uma Thurman's Bride Yeah, um, that Absolutely. is interesting to watch. Uh, my number three, I know you feel differently. It is The Triplets of Belleville. Oh, wow. I love The Triplets of Belleville. I like it way more than Finding Nemo this year. Finding Nemo was a close number 10 for me, but, like, I just... That movie never hits me as hard as it does everyone else. Okay. Um, But I love The Triplets of Belleville. It's so silly and so beautiful to look at, Um, and it just, like, made me so happy when I saw it. My number two, um, as we alluded, it is 28 Days Later, the greatly underappreciated Danny Boyle film. Um, I think it gets lost in like the like repopularization of zombie content. Yes. Um, I think if that movie had been appreciated as it should have been at the time, we could have avoided Danny Boyle getting like rewarded for Slumdog Millionaire, which I uh-huh. do not love. Uh-huh. Um, and I have massive problems with the way that that movie was like fetishized. Um, and then of course, number one, which is also a somewhat problematic movie, but I think at its heart is doing something that reveals the human condition in a beautiful way. It is lost in translation. It's weird that your pull quote on the poster for Slumdog Millionaire was Jai Ho No, and they put it there even though it was so negative. It's weird. Lost in Translation, though, is, is like, it is hard to kind of dismiss the things that are 
problematic about it. I think it actually holds those intention throughout the movie and is actually self-aware of those. Issues I think Lost in like Translation is one of those movies as white that, while not dismissing that, like there are you know that it touches upon things that are very real and very, you know, harmful for people. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes people sort of like, just because you have recognized the existence of something problematic in a thing doesn't necessarily mean that the thing you, you recognized it in is not aware of it and not sort of wrangling with it. I think it's something that Sofia Coppola has. I don't, I don't know if it's fully fleshed out in Lost in Translation, the self-awareness of it and, like, critiquing our relationship with it. I think it is present in her version of The Beguiled, which was questioned by some people because it's, like, slavery doesn't exist in the frame of the movie. But I think in terms of the, like, conversations that happen in the movie and, like, the way it portrays its characters, I do think... Sofia Coppola is a little more aware of it in that movie. But to talk about Lost in Translation, it is one of the like most singular, memorable movie-going experiences of my life. Of course, when I was seeing it as like a 16-year-old and felt like I was seen as a lonely yeah. person when I certainly was not, um, is different. But like my yeah. relationship with this movie hasn't changed. It's Cool. I love it. Nice. All right, I'm going to give my top 10. I will say, I remember, so it did not make my top 10, but American Splendor was just outside of it, and it probably should be my number 10 when I tell you that my number 10 movie, as listed here, is X2 X-Men United, which I will say, I will stand by as a great superhero movie, but it is now problematic to have this director's films on anybody's list. And also I get it that it is a very fanboy thing to have a superhero movie like that on your top 10, whatever moving on. My number nine is capturing the Freedmans, the documentary. Um, This is another thing about like when I talk about like 2003, the buzz fell apart. So it opens up for a lot of like other things like that, that capturing the Freedmans gets to hang out on my top 10 lists is a great thing and i'm very happy with it capturing the freedmen's is a movie that really needs to be revisited it's yes. so it's so hard to like watch and sit yes. with yes but it's it's doing thing it's having a conversation in 2003 that we are having in 2019 in a way that is very human and very um i don't want to say depressing but um it, vital yeah yeah and yes. hard all of that hard my number eight is The Station Agent. Again, we've talked about this. Tom McCarthy, what a fantastic, like, emblematic of all the things you love about Tom McCarthy movies. It's it's quite lovely. Patricia Clarkson's fantastic. My number seven is 28 Days Later. Should probably be higher up on there, considering how much I love it. There are a few 2003 movies that I recommend to other people more vociferously than 28 Days Later. I think even if you scare easily i know it's not like this is a scary movie this is an intense movie there's a lot of blood there's a lot of attack but there is the one moment i always talk about and i think i've written about this before is a moment that precedes violence but it paints it as so profoundly sad Mm -hmm. is when the drop of blood from the bird 
falls into Brendan Gleeson's eye. And because the movie has done such a good job of teaching you the rules of its universe and like, and making sure that like everything is in the forefront of your mind. Cause it's always in the forefront of his character's minds. And so as soon as that drop of blood hits his eye, you in the audience go through the, such a quick progression of, Oh no. And Oh God, I know exactly what's going to happen to him. Oh God, I know it's going to happen quickly. And Oh no, his poor daughter. Like that's the thing. And it takes you through that so quickly. And it doesn't, the music doesn't need to like tell you what to feel. And even like the cuts of the camera aren't, don't need to tell you what to feel like the story as it has built up already. You already know it, but it is in a split second. You just feel helpless and sad that this poor girl has not only now just lost her father in an instant, but is going to have to see him killed in front of her or else she will die. Like it's brutal. It is brutal, but it is such a great filmmaking moment. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, My number six is the fog of war, the Errol Morris film about Robert McNamara. I think it's one of the great documentaries of my lifetime. It is informative and also politically non-didactic in a way that you learn a lot, but you also don't take, it's not that you don't take everything at face value in the movie, but like it also teaches you to be skeptical of, you know, these orthodoxies that you hear. And I love it in America is my number five finding Nemo. My beloved finding Nemo is number four. Lost in translation is my number three. Kill Bill Volume 1 is my number two. And again, the fanboy jumped out and stayed out. Lord of the Rings Return of the King is my number one movie of 2003. As listed here. We are a house divided. We are a house divided. I am the Sauron of this podcast. (laughs) You are the Saruman of this podcast because he had a lot more flair. And And he uh, had wigs. He could talk, honey. He could talk. Yes. All right. So... Yeah, I thought we did. I thought, you know, even back then, even, you know, our lists back then, they're pretty supportable. Before we go, before we fully wrap up our 2003 podcast, well, two things. One thing is I wanted to ask you about specific performances or achievements in the four movies that we cover for 2003 that you feel like could have been elevated to the level of Oscar nominee and it would have been supportable i would say i know you have meg ryan on your best actress list so we can maybe and we just talked about that movie so maybe we don't have to lean on that so hard Mm -hmm. but i'm thinking of we talked last week about anna devere smith in the human stain or like there there are elements of a movie like the missing in like sound you know what i mean like sound design and stuff like that that i feel like is effective in in that kind of way. Is there anything that jumps out at you? Of the actual episodes that we've done, uh, probably not. That's about it for it. I mean, like, Sylvia is the only one that I think there is maybe nothing in that yeah. that's really I, think, I hate to say it, because it's not like it's this ab- abominable movie. I think of the four we've watched, it's... It was definitely the most of a chore because even though yeah. I think the worst of them is the human stain, like yes. I was at least getting like upset <laughs> while watching it. Well, and, and there are peaks and valleys in the human stain that I think Sylvia just sort of stays on a low, low flame throughout. 
That does and, not work. And even Paltrow, yeah. like, I, it wouldn't be the worst Best Actress nomination. Um, and it's maybe even a performance I like more than one or two of the nominees. But um, it's just, like, nothing around her is supporting yeah. her being the best that she can be. And it's not right. her fault. Right. Um, so, yeah, like, that's that's even a non-start for me, unfortunately. So with that, instead of doing IMDb game, I have come up with a different game to end this bonus episode, and it is going to center around our favorite little miscellaneous award of the season. Yes, <laughs> I am talking about the AARP Movies for Grownups Awards. Joseph, I have a challenge for you. Yes. Do you think you can name the five movies named by the AARP as the best movies for grown-ups of 2003. I'm going to give it a shot. I'll say that. All right. So we let's stick to IMDb game uh, rules. Okay. And if two you get strikes, two wrong, get I'll start yeah. giving you hints. All right. I think Lost in Translation is one of them. Yes, Lost in Translation. I think Mystic River is one of them. Mystic River, yes. Is Seabiscuit one of them? Seabiscuit, yes. You have two more slots to fill and no wrong guesses. I feel like it's not going to be either one of the two action-adventure big epic movies that were Best Picture nominees. Now the question is, which of the sort of fallen Oscar buzzy movies found a soft landing with the AARP? I want to say House of Sand and Fog, so I'm just going to throw that out since I have no strikes. Congratulations, House of Sand and Fog. Fuck. You have one movie and no wrong guesses. You're doing way better at this than I would have guessed. Um, so the ones that I'm toying with in my head right now are some combination of Cold Mountain, Big Fish, The Last Samurai, and The Station Agent. And I'm going to guess Big Fish. No. Fuck, I wanted to go five for five. All right. Um, wait, is In America? No, that's your two wrong guesses. This right. is the one that I figured would probably trip you up because it is the least expected. Um, it showed up in one, maybe two, of our top tens. Oh. It's 28 Days Later. No. <laughs> Could you imagine? Amazing. That'd be amazing. Um, is it the station agent? It is not the station agent. Is it animated? No, it is not. That'd be odd if Finding Nemo was a movie for grown-ups. Um, is it American Splendor? It is not. It is an Oscar nominee. How many nominations? One. Is it a documentary? No. Um, one nomination. It is a comedy. Oh, it's something's got to give. No, it's not something's got to give. Oh, Jesus! <laughs> a mighty wind. It's a mighty wind. Wow, good for them. Yeah, best movies for grown-up lineup was. House of Sand and Fog, Lost in Translation, A Mighty Wind, Mystic River, and Sea Biscuit. Would you care to guess what the winner was? 
Um, sea biscuit. Nope. It was Mystic River. Mystic River. Yeah. Mystic River would have been my guess for the winner. Yeah. So when I saw that, I was not shocked. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. Wow. Well done. That, That's a good we quiz. End... That's not a that bad we... you know what? We might think about like throwing that in like interspersing that between uh that and IMDB game every once in a blue moon. If we yeah, yeah, if it comes to a cool year to guess that. Yeah. I like that. Okay. That's excellent, Chris. Very well done. Anything last thing you want to say about this mini series? I want to thank our listeners for being game for something like this. And maybe, you know, if you got bored with 2003, you kept it to yourself. And honestly, kudos to you all for that. Um, We'll be back to doing a more variety of time periods. Although, again, you know, we're pretty 90s and 2000s focused, you guys. As you may have noticed, our perspective only goes so far. (laughs) Well, and also, like, the modern era of what, you know, Oscar predictions and Oscar, like, selling movies for Oscar. Agreed. is kind of essential to what we are doing here. It is. Um, yes. But yes, we will be doing the usual and having more of a variety. I think once we figure out how well this miniseries has gone and what you yeah. have all appreciated for it, we will jump on another one, whether it's for a performer yeah. or focusing on a genre. We've got some like interesting that. things coming up in the in the in the near term for you. We've got a couple episodes that will tie into events happening in pop culture in some fun ways we've got our our 50th episode which is going to be very very fun for you guys listeners have already voted on what that will be we don't know yet because we're coming to you from the distant past but yes yes. so yeah we're gonna have some more fun movies and some more fun guests and we thank you all for being with us on this ride we really love doing it so Thank you. This is our kiss at the end of 2003's <laughs> Rainbow. Yes, exactly. You are all precious, more precious to us than a pot of gold. Indeed. We are blowing like a blowing peace and freedom. We are blowing you and me. So That's yes. Mark Ruffalo saying that line. Yes. That is our episode. If you want more This Head Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. You should vote for... The next time we put a poll in front of you, Chris is very good with those. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff when you are not writing bomb-ass tweets? Um, besides the bomb-ass tweets, apparently, that I have on Twitter.com, which you can find at Chris V. File, that's F-E-I-L. You can also find me on Letterboxd under the same name. I keep a running This Had Oscar Buzz list that will have direct links to our episodes and our stats for our IMDb game uh, rounds. Uh, I also write regularly at thefilmexperience.net. Excellent. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. Uh, Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I am also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed. Same spelling. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with iTunes visibility. So be the opposite of the drop of blood in Brendan Gleeson's eyeball and help visibility with uh with everybody out there on itunes and leave us a nice review won't you that is all for this week but we hope you will be back next week for more buzz we'll see you in crab town in autumn everyone's a winner baby that's so loud.